0: Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. The weather has turned and the cold front has brought some chilling warnings from the government's chief scientific and medical advisors. With coronavirus cases rising again, doubling every seven days at the moment, it seems, the Prime Minister has confirmed that restrictions on everyday life are likely to be in place for another six months as the government seeks to keep case numbers down and the death rate too. So pubs are ordered to close at 10pm, people are advised to work from home, not their offices. And we're going to look at what this about turn means for the economy, looking at the Chancellor's new measures as well. How will public services, hospitals, schools, police and social care cope with the second wave of Covid that now seems to be with us? What does the change of course mean for the Prime Minister's own standing? And in the week that Keir Starmer gave his first party conference speech as Labour leader, how does Labour position itself in this time of national crisis? Joining me in the virtual studio today is terrific lineup. Gemma Tetlow, our chief economist. Hi, Gemma. Hello. Fresh from listening to the, the Chancellor's speech. Nick Davies, who heads our work on public services. Hi Nick.
1: Hello.
0: And Kath Haddon, who leads our work on ministers and the Constitution. Kath, great to have you with us. Hi, Bronwyn. I'm also delighted to be joined from a socially distant room somewhere in the Hello. IFG by Sir David Lidington, former Cabinet Office Minister. De facto Deputy Prime Minister at that time, now Chair of the Royal United Services Institute, the military think tank, and an IFG board member. Great to have you with us, David.
2: Thanks, Bromley. Good to be here. Well,
0: let's kick straight off. It's been quite a week. On Monday, the Chief Scientist, Patrick Valance, and the Chief Medical Officer, Chris Whitty, used a televised address to set out a series of what were undeniably gloomy predictions perhaps 50,000 cases a day by next month if rates of infection aren't slowed. And so with the ground cleared ahead of him, the Prime Minister then issued a statement to the House on Tuesday, followed by broadcast to the nation that evening, which put out the the need for restrictions for perhaps the next six months. It was only a month ago that the message from the government was for people to get back to their offices, to eat out, to help out, to get back into the town centres. Not anymore, and not for some time. And as we've been talking, uh, people are looking at Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has said in setting out the government's new response to the latest measures. So, Gemma, what are we hearing so far if we start with that economic response? What we've had really since
3: the summer is that the economy had already started slowing in some ways, even before the greatest concern in recent weeks about the rising case numbers and even before the Prime Minister stood up and announced an extra wave of uh, more tight restrictions um, earlier this week. Looking at uh, Rishi's announcement of extra economic help today, there had obviously been a lot of pressure on the government in recent weeks to do something more with the end of the furlough scheme looming at the end of October. And the Chancellor today announced a package of two halves, in part continuing uh, the sort of loan schemes and tax deferrals that businesses have been able to take advantage of so far, and then announcing what he's describing as a new job support scheme, although I think you could arguably describe it as an adjustment to the previous coronavirus job retention scheme to extend that sort of support, but in a slightly more targeted form beyond the end of October.
0: Why would you describe it as an extension? Because he said, look, the the previous scheme wasn't sustainable, it's too expensive, this is a new one. It's slightly a matter of a
3: presentation, but if you look at the details of the scheme really The previous announcement for the coronavirus job retention scheme was that up to the end of October, the government would contribute up to 60% of workers' salaries if they were either fully furloughed or on reduced hours with their employer. Employers would be expected to pay the wages for any hours that they did work and then would be expected to top up another 20% of wages to mean that workers took home 80% of their pay, taking into account uh, support from their employer and the government. Today's announcements tweak that scheme uh, in a few quite important ways. One adjustment is that from November onwards, it will be the case that the government will only contribute towards wages of workers who are being employed in some capacity, being brought back for at least a third of their previous normal hours of work. So the government won't any longer be supporting those who are working no hours at all. Um, And they'll be asking for a bit more contribution from employers and workers will be asked to take a bit more of a hit to their salaries but all of those I would see as adjustments to the what was already an existing scheme rather than being a entirely new approach to this.
0: So will it retain jobs or do you think we're going to look at quite steep job losses uh, from this point because it isn't the same as the previous scheme?
3: This is certainly significantly more support than uh, employers were expecting to get prior to today's announcement. So, certainly compared to what might have happened after the end of October without today's announcements, then we'll likely see fewer job losses. But it is true that employers will now have to decide whether they do have a way to employ these people for at least a third of their previous hours of work rather than keeping them fully furloughed. And they will have to face some extra costs if they want to keep workers on their books. It's also the case, given the way this is structured, and a lot of um, comparisons have been made between the government's announcements today and the sort of Kurz-Arbeit approach in uh, Germany, for example. But the those sorts of schemes uh, tend the motivation behind them tends to be sort of creating an agreement between employers and workers to spread the burden of loss of hours across the workforce. Actually, given the way that this scheme today is set up, employers will face a slight, slightly greater incentive to have. A smaller number of workers working more hours um, rather than to have a lot of workers working a minimum number of hours.
0: Interesting. And just one more thing quickly. Our new paper this this, this week, which you've contributed to, puts the co- the cost of COVID so far in the form of public borrowing uh, at a whopping 317 billion. Well, that, uh, and that's up to this point. That's going to rise now, isn't it?
3: That will certainly rise. Um, we haven't seen estimates yet of what the today's new announcements are going to cost, but certainly that will add potentially billions of pounds to the cost that we've had so far. And this is coming in response to the fact that the economy is expected now to perform less well than we probably thought it was going to a few months ago when the last official economic forecasts were published. So yes, that that figure of £317 billion will now go up. And it looks increasingly likely that some of these costs will spill over from this year into next year as coronavirus remains a threat.
0: Okay, I don't ask you for many predictions. On air, if you like, that's probably an easy one Um, going up. (laughs) Cass, um, you've written quite a bit about the messaging from government uh, being clear or often not so clear. What about this time?
1: I mean, the thing that's really changed in the last week, because we've had obviously the new imposition of um, measures nationally, particularly um, the pub curfew, but also changes to, to number of people that can be in weddings and, you know, a few other things. So it's the first sort of really holistic approach to sort of restrict further restrictions after a period throughout the summer when there was a lot of easing. But I think the thing that really is resonating in people's minds from what the Prime Minister said this week is when he said, this is going to be in place for at least six months. And, you know, it was only a couple of weeks ago, everyone was still going around the debate of, you know, when the prime minister said, um, you know, maybe we can get back to normal by Christmas or whatever. How realistic was that? Starting to sink in that it wasn't realistic and that this is going to be with us for some time. But this was a really stark message from the government that this is now the new normal for at least the next half a year it will then be a year that many people have not seen family members have not been back to their offices and so forth. So that I think is really driving it home. And then combined obviously with, you know, this, le- it is a load of new support, but it also means a lot of new businesses, are you know, now having to face the fact of actually they're likely to fail and, and the chancellor acknowledged that. So I think it's just bringing it all really home to roost for people about um, this isn't temporary, you know, this is going to last for a long while and, and, uh, it's going to be a really difficult autumn and winter to come David is the cabinet united on this do you think
2: uh, i mean i'm not in the room so, so it's, it's, it's difficult to be certain but um i think that there there are certainly a a number of ministers who have been pushing very strongly for the government to strike a balance of policy on covid which recognizes the economic impact and I, 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 I this is characterized as, as um, those who are putting um, the NHS and public health first and those who are putting the economy first I, I, I think it's more complex than that I think that everybody in the cabinet will want to find a way of minimizing um, poverty and unemployment um, and I think what Rishi Sunak and some other cabinet ministers have been stressing is that this is both about the the well-being of individual families and businesses but it's also about revenue. That If you don't get the tax receipts coming in through a thriving economy, you're going to have some very difficult decisions about public expenditure uh, over the next couple of years. You know, we want to keep paying for the NHS. There's going to be a big public uh, pressure, I think, for social care to be finally grasped uh, by this government. Um, you've got police, you've got other public services that are saying they need more, not less money. And you need the taxes coming in, and that means you need businesses to be profitable and you need people to be in work. And I my, I, I welcome what is uh, being announced today from this initial hearing of it. I will be interested to see the business reaction. I and mean, I hope that it's still going to be worth the while for companies to continue, say, to employ two people part-time with subsidised wages, rather than to make one redundant and keep the other going full-time. And I, the other question I would have would be, is this going to help some businesses, particularly in hospitality, where, you know, in a restaurant or something, you might need your full complement of staff for however many hours you are open? And it's not so easy to cut back on the number of hours and still maintain the service. But I think we'll have to see what the, the, the business response is
0: very, very good points. Um, and of course we're we're not getting a budget now uh, in November as, as was expected. We're going to have to wait till the spring. is that uh, is that the right decision? do you think?
2: Yes, and I, I, there there'll have to be some uh, some decisions on immediate spending. and I think there's a big question as to what, um, what what's almost certain to be a one year spending review going to mean for the integrated review of defence and security policy that was meant to set a uh, a medium term course, based on a new assessment of the government's security and international priorities. But look, when there's so much uncertainty over COVID, it seems to be sensible that you don't make far-reaching changes to taxes or spending just at this time, because you don't know what it's going to be like in six or 12 months' time. we, We, these scientists, were talking more optimistically this week about, oh, a vaccine in six months, but does that mean a vaccine available? Does it mean a vaccine not just available, but manufactured in industrial quantities and administered to a large number of people. Those are two different things.
0: We're going to go on in a moment to talk about public services, which you just mentioned. Uh, We'll talk about that in some depth. But um, just before we move on, Nick, the opposition was was laying a lot of the blame on test and trace uh, and and saying that we wouldn't have needed perhaps um, this this second lockdown if the government had been more successful in test and trace. What do you make of that?
4: I think that's a a fair charge. If... People can't access tests or if tests aren't returned quickly, uh, then it's not possible to effectively trace infections, which means that people who should be isolating uh, aren't. All that makes it harder to reopen the economy while keeping infection rates down and keeping pressure off the NHS. The failure to get test and trace working properly means the government must make trade-offs that could otherwise be avoided or might otherwise be less painful
0: but we did a report at the start of this about how to ease lockdown, did, we, did the government get things wrong in that, that means that it's now had to be re- reversed, is that the advice we could pick out of that? Nick's already picked
3: up on one of the key things that we said in that report, they needed to get right um, in order to ease the lockdown, which is that we said at the time they needed to get the test and trace strategy right in order to be able to ensure that localised lockdowns will be enough to keep on top of the spread of the disease. So that's one area uh, where things clearly haven't gone so well so far. I think in some of the other aspects that we pointed to in the report Probably the government has got a grip of a little bit more now. Um, Back when we published that report at the end of May, we highlighted the fact that the government was very unclear about really what its objectives were and therefore how it would trade off different risks as it thought about opening the economy again. I think we have seen the government gradually become clearer about its objectives, for example, being much clearer about the fact that schools will be absolutely the last thing that they want to shut down again, um, prioritising ensuring that kids will stay uh, with access to education. I think we saw a much clearer statement from the chancellor today in parliament Highlighting the fact that there are trade offs to be made. There are no easy choices when it comes to thinking about how you prioritise minimising the spread of the disease, ensuring access to education and maintaining jobs. And so I think that on those things, we probably got a clearer sense of the government's priorities, and that probably helps people to predict how the government might react uh, this time around. But I think other areas remain difficult. One of the things that we talked about in our report back in May was the need for consumer confidence as the economy opened up and there is a danger that having done one big push from the government to encourage people to get back out, eat out, help out, get back to your offices, actually it's turned out that that has contributed to a second spike of the virus and it may be more difficult the next time around for the government to get the messaging right to really encourage people um, that they can take advantage of new freedoms when, as and when those become available again.
0: Okay, let's turn to public services, which we were just touching on, schools, hospitals and the rest, and how prepared they are for a second wave. Nick, you wrote a report for us earlier this year, which explored how well public services were prepared for the initial crisis. And the answer, in short, was not very prepared. Have things improved?
4: Uh, In some ways, they have. So at the start of the crisis, public services had plans for dealing with a pandemic, but these were focused on flu. This led to serious problems with PPE supply and distribution and meant that little consideration had been given to how services could be delivered while maintaining social distancing. Since then, the government has spent billions of pounds on PPE, hospitals and GP practices have been redesigned, new nightingale hospitals and courts have been built, and there's been a major investment in technology to enable remote working. That will all help for a second wave. However, I think the bigger problem is likely to be the public service workforce. So with an unlimited budget, it's possible to quickly buy PPE, ventilators, computers and even temporary buildings. But you can't magic into existence tens of thousands of experienced nurses, prison officers or care workers. And public service entered the crisis with pretty severe recruitment and retention problems in some cases and they've coped by redeploying staff relaxing regulations and drafting in volunteers and retirees but that's not sustainable in the medium and certainly not in the long term and there's a real risk of burnout if things get worse over winter
0: and schools obviously a big mess which we've talked about a lot on this this podcast is it going better at the moment
4: uh, so it's gone better in that they uh, most uh, pupils were able to return to schools uh, in September, uh, whereas uh, plans earlier in the summer to return pupils hadn't been a success. However, obviously that has put severe pressure on uh, the testing regime. There have been a number of outbreaks uh, in schools, and I really don't think the government has a good plan b for what happens if they have to lock down schools a lot again i mean the implicit implicit plan b is to return to remote teaching but that risks the gap between poorer and better off pupils growing and there have been quite a few studies uh during the lockdown that showed that kind of disadvantaged pupils have had far less access to high quality remote lessons uh than their better off classmates
0: there have been a lot of um... Anecdotes, haven't there, of, of um, problems of, of teachers who might have been infected or, or pupils, and whole classes having to self-isolate. This is the problem of the lack of testing, of not being able to be sure that when you've got the schools back, that they can actually stay back.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, any anyone with children knows that you know kids get snuffles and colds and temperatures all the time, and obviously. Normally, you know, kids would go into class and it, it probably wouldn't be a problem. But right now, obviously, everyone is um, being very careful, wanting to be responsible. And that doesn't mean doesn't just mean that the child can't go to class. It might mean the whole class has to stay home, but also their whole families have to stay home as well, with knock on impacts on the economy and indeed on uh, public service, public services, where many of those parents uh, will work. So, yeah, that, that lack of testing is a real problem, both for schools and the wider public services in the economy.
0: Kath, you've written a lot about the, the centre of government, we've got at the heart mm. of government, around Downing Street and the Cabinet Office and so on, and, and their difficulties, um, which they would acknowledge in, in getting a grip. And We've had a, this parade of civil servants. In terms of managing the public services, do you think mm. the government is, is now working well with the departments and the head of
1: the public services as it managed to get more of a grip? I mean, look, the first thing to say is like number 10 can never deliver on stuff like this. You know, it is a very small number of people. The best you can do is try to have the right connections across government that you know what's actually going on. You know, when problems are coming up, you're directing priorities in terms of action and resources and all that kind of stuff. And that you are a capable decision making and, you know, capable, functional decision making hub for coordinating a lot of this stuff, but you can't actually deliver it. So you're very dependent on departments so they have put in a lot of effort to try and do better on all of that coordination there's been lots of sort of key individuals brought in you know with some kind of remit to reorganize things and so forth there's been a big problem since the start of the pandemic about the analytical capacity at the center trying to make sure that they're getting in you know which are huge streams of data coming from across departments from arm's length bodies from you know uh, local government you know all sorts of different and across the health service all sorts of different kinds of data to understand what was going on. And then, you know, as they've obviously tried to gather more and more data to understand better, you know, what's happening in terms of infections, why they're rising and so forth. um, They've done a lot more work to try and improve that. But you still seem to have problems in terms of anticipating what might happen. I mean, you know, we can, there's been a lot of discussion, obviously. You know, we all talked about potential for a second wave. I think, you know, it's very difficult to find anyone who didn't realise there was a risk this autumn that, you know, cases might rise again, you, that you could suppress them, but as soon as you start opening everything up again, you know, there's a chance that it all comes back stronger. So the question is, on all of these things we've been talking about, what were they doing to prepare and where did they not just think through, you know, schools are going to come back, cases might rise testing capacity might be uh, under pressure. So what was happening in the summer uh, to prepare for the autumn, basically?
0: David, can I ask you, I mean, part of the problem that our report identified in public services being prepared for this kind of thing was um, the the uh, damage, if I can use that word, that they had suffered by a decade of austerity. Would, would you accept that?
2: I think that the, yeah, I think that to some extent I do, the back, the, because I think the back office cuts, the, which have taken Australia, Whitehall, have often meant in each department, the elimination of the sort of coordinating functions and middle management functions uh, that you really do need in a crisis like this. Uh, uh, and, and there's also been the inevitable um, wage competition with the private sector. So a department like the Treasury has been losing you know, year by year a lot of its best and brightest people because the city's been able to tempt them with um, to much higher salaries than they were getting in, in Whitehall. But I, I still think that the, the, the public services have responded pretty well um, in, in, in what has what a, been a, an unprecedented pandemic where even the top scientists in the world did not in the spring, and even now they know more, but they, they don't they know a lot and they admit they don't know a lot about this virus and how it is going to play out and how best it is to be overcome. Um, I just wanted to make a couple couple of comments, if I may, Bronwyn. and just in response to what was said on schools. I think it's a it's a it's a secondary school secondary school issue, not not a primary school issue. But but I I frankly, if we got to talking about you know a second lockdown of schools, I think you would see a major push in the Conservative Parliamentary Party for a rethink on strategy. And I think you know the Swedish model and so on would would start to come to the fore in debate again for, for the reasons that mentioned about the, the impact on young people particularly from, from poorer backgrounds. Universities I think is a, is a, a, a real problem. I, I just ask myself if you've got in a university now you know, several hundred students being asked to self-isolate how are they going to be fed? Is the university going to sort of be running a Meals on Wheels service around these student halls? There's quite a lot of practical problems as well as mm. the fact it's young people who are, in my observations, increasingly making their own judgments about the degree of risk they're prepared to bear in their social lives, you know, are much less likely than older people simply to go with whatever instructions issue from Whitehall. What I'd like to see the government do are two things. I think the government's doing it, it working flat out. You look at ministers and the, you know, the tiredness shows something, unsurprisingly, um, strain uh, of, of carrying these pressures. But two things I would plead with them to do is, one, to be more open about your working. There is a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of public goodwill towards that. But, for example, when Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance, both of whom I work with, both of whom I greatly respect, did their press call the other day, I happen to think it was a mistake not to have asked scientific and medical correspondents to come in and ask them questions about their model, to ask them about the assumptions they're making about, for example, impact on cancer patients, other treatments that have been slowed down because of the priority given to COVID. And the other thing I would I would plead with the government to do is to be willing to consult and decentralise and delegate more. I think that local authorities, uh, the various local and sub-regional networks that exist could be used more than they are being at the moment. And again, I think there's a readiness from people in local government right across political parties to play their part.
0: And Gemma, how is the government going to pay for all this? Is it, in fact? That question has been asked quite a lot in recent months,
3: and I think we very much are still at the point, given the scale of threat from coronavirus and the impact that's having on the economy at least so far, sort of a large part of this is going to be temporary, even if quite a prolonged temporary. I think we still are in the sphere of the government needs to do whatever it takes to cushion the impact of this on the private sector for the next few months. The question of how we repay any of this in future really is a question, I think, for later this decade rather than for the immediate months and years maybe not years, but in the immediate months. Um, so I think that's it's an important question to ask at some point right at the moment. I don't think the UK government is up against a point of not being able to borrow extra money to keep some of these supports going. So it's not an immediate question that the Chancellor has to answer. And would you say the same about social care? Social care has obviously been a long-running problem um, in the UK Politicians and experts know what the problems are and they know what the range of answers are. The difficulty has been to sell to the wider public one of those solutions, which must involve either higher general taxation to increase the public offer um, on social care or requiring uh, the private Sector individuals to pay more towards their own social care, perhaps through some kind of insurance model. It's been difficult for years to coalesce around one of those options. Um, Sadly, I don't think in the middle of this crisis, when there's so much else on government's mind, that it's going to be uh, particularly easy to coalesce right now around one of those solutions. And I fear we may be in a phase for a while longer of sort of muddling through and putting extra money into public sector social care, offering to keep things going uh, until we can find a proper solution.
0: All right. Well, we're not going to use this crisis to solve that then. Let's move on then to talk about the politics of all this, um, which you and David were both touching on. Because um, this is, for a start, going to be very different. Lockdown, there isn't one set of instructions for the whole country. Not going to be daily press conferences. And then we'll be clapping for the NHS and the novelty of Zoom calls and House Party apps has long, long passed. So judging by the tone of the Prime Minister and, and indeed our discussion just now, there's not going to be any more uh, sense of a return to normal life very soon. But instant polling does show that most people support the Prime Minister's response. David, you were just picking up on that point that there is public support there. Are you impressed by the way he's handled, at least some of these difficult announcements?
2: I think that he's he's, he's risen to it when he's made the when he's made those uh, big appeals directly to the public. I think that the what the government n- needs to do is to try to have a message that is consistent and clear. I, I, you know, and, and there's a number of ways in which I think this, this, this could be done. It's, it's, part of it is continuity of, of spokesmen. And I, mean, I rather like the daily, the daily press conferences. We perhaps you may not want to have them every day, but then have them fronted up by one person, whether it's this new number 10 spokesman who's going to be appointed shortly or by a designated minister. Michael, go perhaps, come and speak. And then introduce others as a supporting cast as as needed, rather than shifting cast day to day. But I think to try to distil uh, the message and to avoid too many detailed tweaks uh, would be uh, helpful to the government. I mean, again, I come to what I said earlier. It's, there's so much that is still unknown about this that I think people are forgiving of the fact that the government has not the houses has not been consistent. It it has had to vary its tactics as information became available. At one stage, we were all told uh, the answer is uh, a lot more ventilator capacity in hospitals. And then the medical analysis changed and actually decided you don't want to intubate so many many patients. But it was a reasonable priority for the government to have set at that time, given the, the evidence and the advice that was then available to them. So consistency and simplicity and directness in communications, I think, is key because I do think that there is less readiness on the part of the public to simply do what they're told and not make their own assessments now than there was back in March. And I think it's probably still a minority, but it's, you know, even if it's 10, 20 percent of the population are basically saying, I don't give a stuff, I, I, I'm not interested, I'll, I'll do my own thing, that is a problem.
1: Bronwyn, can I just jump in on that? Um, Because I'm interested, David, to probe that when you say about consistency. One of the, um, you know, perhaps uh, greatest criticisms that's been levelled at the the government over the summer has been consistency on messaging, you know, in a very broader sense. At first it was, everyone eat out to help out, you know, people should get back to their offices, go back into the centre of town, support the economy and so forth. Um, You know, then obviously more recently, yes, I take it that the situation has, you know, changed, Uh, the numbers have worsened, you need a change of policy. But then it comes very much about, you know, this is down to young people who've been mixing too much, this is the fault of the public for going out and doing too much same over test and trace. You know, at one point it was, it was too many people asking for tests when, you know, at one point the Prime Minister had said everyone who needs a test should get a test. So is there a problem there in terms of consistency about um, those sort of broader themes of how they're communicating with the public and sort of explaining the reasoning for, for what's going on rather than just the, the motions that are in place?
2: Yes, it goes, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about openness. Um, I think the government needs to explain its its working and its thinking because uh, the policy does change as new facts and new analyses become available. Um, and, and people will understand that um, given the unprecedented nature of this, this medical crisis. Um, but then governments need to carry people along with them by explaining that and how they are trying to balance competing risks all the time. You know, we have to keep the economy we have to have people at work, kids at school, um, but we are also wanted to try to minimize transmission of the virus. And the government needs to explain to people how they are man- trying to manage those many different risks, all of which they're doing. I do very much agree, and I think, I think ministers should avoid um, in any way insinuating that you know, the that, 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 that people uh, are, are to blame for things, because I think the overwhelming majority of people have done their very best. To comply. Um, but this is also, you know, there's also an the element of realism about this. I mean,
0: the idea. Can I just ask you, because I, I mean, I I'd, I'd take all those points, but um, I wonder if you've been slightly kind to the government. In that the polls have, the polls have um, uh, eroded, if I can put it that way. The government started with a big lead. And, and, and you know, it's really gone, um, gone to essentially level pegging, if not slightly in Labour's favour.
2: I think the I think the poll oh the polls have certainly uh, shown they've catching to catch up. But I don't think that is entirely due to COVID. I mean, COVID, COVID plays its part in it, but I think Keir Starmer not being Jeremy Corbyn um, has uh, made a, a great deal of difference here. Um, I think where I, I do there's no avoiding it. I think Barnard Castle uh, did cut through to public opinion, uh, you know, people who don't normally um, pay any attention to what's going on inside the Whitehall of Westminster bubble, because so many people had gone through agonies themselves over separation from uh, vulnerable family members for, for many months. Uh, and I think it's important that the government, in, in, in both in the language it uses and in the policies that it adopts, um, uh, you know, does everything it can to maintain public trust. And that is why, one reason, as well as a practical reason, why I think government needs to demonstrate that it is reaching out, Uh, to local government, to devolved administrations, to uh, opposing political forces. You know, metro mayors who happen to be Labour as well as metro mayors who are Conservative. They should be partners in this, not adversaries.
0: So I I think there's a really, really important point. I want to ask you and Kath about the party, uh, uh, about the the Parliamentary Party, because there's a lot of anger on the back benches at the moment about the economic dangers of lockdown, about the government's um, U-turns, about its communication. Is, Is that a problem for the Prime Minister at this point?
2: I it's I think at the moment he, he's he's okay. I mean, there, there's those who go and brief the Sunday newspapers about how unhappy they are. Um, do not necessarily speak for the majority of a parliamentary party. Um, but I I think that you know members of Parliament quite properly are going to ask questions you know, why are we choosing this course rather than follow what Germany has done or what Sweden has done Um, and that's perfectly reasonable and the government that's why the government again needs to engage and it needs to show it's working it needs to explain the evidence uh, on which they are basing Mm. their 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 assumptions uh and and, you know so is for example is is telling pubs they have to cut uh, to shut at 10 um, is there evidence that shows that that, that um, makes an appreciable difference, or actually is what the government really concerned about, that, that people, the longer they hang around the pubs at night, are more likely to lose inhibitions, more likely also to congregate after uh, closing closing time and travelling back, and that is the, the thing they're really trying to get at. And these are arguments that people will be willing to to hear and to understand and sympathise with
0: I was wondering if you could just take us into a bit of uh, the, these um, new restrictions, um, and, and restrictions generally put through Parliament uh,
1: without scrutiny without at the start of the, the, the pandemic. How are these ones being treated now? We're still using the same sort of processes for putting these in place, um, using largely uh, regulations under health protection that means that they can bring them in at the very last minute. I mean, you've got different things going on at the moment. Obviously, there's a load of different local lockdowns across the country. They're not all equal in terms of of what um, restrictions are put in place. Uh, The sort of geographical areas that they're covering is all very different depending on, you know, the particular region and the the cases and and what the the virus looks like there. Then you've got the national ones, which, again, these are devolved. So there's different restrictions in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and in England. And when when Boris Johnson announces national ones, he is um, talking about England At the moment, the the latest thing that has been put through both the rule of six change, so that rather than a variety of different ways in which you can meet people outside of your immediate household, it's all being guided by this rule that you can meet with five other people in different circumstances. You've got the closures of pubs and restaurants and so forth after 10pm. Other things are still reliant on guidance. The other important thing that was announced um, this week was, again, the preference For people to work from home where necessary, that is still based on guidance. But there is quite a lot of law in place in terms of what employers have to do to protect their staff members, and also linking it up to the economic stuff to make sure that they are not punishing people who then have to self isolate and you know stay at home for the 14 days until they know whether they're out of the woods or not.
0: Yeah, and Nick, let us just turn to labour. Briefly, they they had their party conference, their virtual party conference this this week. Kate Green, the Shadow Education Secretary, was getting quite a kicking for this for saying that Labour shouldn't let a good crisis go to waste. A reminder of how delicate this is. Um, how do you think they've handled their opposition on the public services?
4: I think they've struck a reasonably good balance so far. It's, but you're right; it's a very difficult circumstances for them. You know, in a crisis, it's normal for the public to get behind the government and across the world. Ruling parties have seen their approval ratings rise since the start of the pandemic. So, you know, the Labour Front frontbench have broadly supported the government, focusing their attacks on questions of competence, uh, an area where this government definitely has a weakness. Obviously, the opposition uh, could try to use this moment to put forward its own ideas. But as the delay to the budget shows and as discussed earlier, there's so much uncertainty right now that it would be foolhardy to make assumptions about where the country will be in six months, never mind by the time we reach the next election. I think there's also the basic strategic point of not interrupting your enemy while they're making a mistake and right now the government are are making plenty of those Uh, and as mentioned earlier the polls have tightened so Labour's approach does appear to be working for them so far.
0: Hmm. David do you think the government, uh, your former colleagues, should be worried about the way Keir Starmer is positioning the party?
4: Oh, I think
2: I think uh, I, I'm not so worried is the word I choose but they should be they should certainly be alert and concerned oh, I mean, I, very, very good word <laughs> but also yeah, but also you know I, I, I take the view that uh, regardless of you know whether it's my party or anyone else who is in, in in government um it, it is good for the quality of government if you have uh, an opposition that is that is effective and keeping ministers on their toes because that means that ministers uh, cannot get away with lazy or arrogant thinking, which is just a temptation that a government, any government that is unchallenged, can slip into. And frankly, under Mr Corbyn, um, Labour in opposition was deeply ineffective. And I think Starmer has begun to put Labour back together again. Um, but as the polls show, he is not yet near convincing people that his party is fit to be entrusted with government. And that's that's the task he has still got to try and achieve his political objective. But, you know. Uh, A a sharper opposition, I think, is good for for the government itself and will get the Conservative government to raise its game. Mm.
0: And Gemma, finally, in the middle of this six-month period comes the end of the Brexit transition period. And everyone, including EU countries and Michel Barnier, is wondering whether the Prime Minister actually can afford politically a, a, a no deal, though there is clearly one option that is still possible uh, he obviously could be seen then to be have added the, the impact of the no-deal uh, all the economic disruption going on at the moment. So how bad, do, from what we know, could a no-deal uh, outcome be?
3: We're already starting to see some indications along those lines, obviously stories in the newspaper this week about uh, requiring permits to get into Kent if it's the case that there are uh, major queues at the borders and problems with paperwork and things. So... Things will, deal or no deal, things will change at the end of December um, when we get to the end of the transition period and we have a new relationship with the EU. And that will involve more frictions in our trading relationship, more paperwork for people to fill out whether or not there is a deal, for example, and that will have an impact on the UK economy. Whether or not that feeds through into a change in this government's negotiating stance, um, I think... That's a much more political question. I think people have been suggesting that that would be the case for uh, many years now, and we haven't yet seen that happen. So um, I think it it remains to be seen how much those concerns about potential further economic impacts uh, in the event of no deal feed through into changes in the way the government trades off what
0: currently it sees as its priorities in the negotiations. It does indeed remain to be seen. We're bringing you lots of answers, but not to that one. We're all going to have to wait on that. And that's the end of this week's Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Kath Adam, Gemma Tetlow, Nick Davies, and especially to David Liddington, who's navigating the internal corridors of the IFG. Thanks for being with us. Thank you all at home for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more of our discussions, please do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. And if you haven't had enough coronavirus, then um, or sort of discussion of it, let me put it that way, then check out our podcast, looking at how to deal with a second wave and lockdown. And next Sunday, we're going to be running a day of special fringe events as part of the Conservative Party's online conference. So do tune in. Events are going to be live. Check out our website to register or listen back wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find all our work, including the new Cost of Covid paper, at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. So see you next week. Looks like it can be a long winter, one spent mostly at home. Don't worry, we'll keep you company.